Welcome to Get the Scope podcast for current and aspiring nursing and midwifery students for Scarlett and Caitlin. Hi guys, welcome to another episode of Get the Scope. Today we are joined by Heather, the, a perinatal psychologist. Just a content warning that today's episode covers topics that discuss pregnancy loss and birth trauma and may be triggering for some listeners. We hope that you enjoy today's episode and here is Heather. Hi guys and welcome back to another episode of Get the Scope. Today we are joined by Dr. Heather. Um, as always, I'll just start off by doing an acknowledgement of country. So we'd like to acknowledge and show respect to the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional custodians of the land on which we are recording today. We'd like to pay our respects to the First Nations peoples past, present and future, and we acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. Hi Heather and welcome. Hi, thank you. We're so excited for today's episode. I'm also joined here by um, Rihanna, who is a, a third year nursing midwifery student who has appeared on another episode as well. Hi, nice <laughs> to be back. All right, then we'll just dive straight into the first question. So yes. can you introduce yourself to the listeners and tell us about your line of work and where it all began? Sure. Um, so I'm uh, at the moment most predominantly a perinatal psychologist, but I'm also a nurse and I'm also a midwife. Um, and I apologise, I was going to start off by saying I do need to acknowledge that I'm on Paramount Country, which is the um, land of the Aboriginal owners of the Adelaide Hills. It's quite a broad and diverse area. And it's one of the more less well-known um, countries in terms of South Australia, interestingly enough. So in um, strength of your welcome, I wish to make that acknowledgement. So um, I guess in terms of the work I do now, um, I work with a very specialised area of clientele in psychology, um, and that is uh, perinatal women. That can be anything from uh, women who are experiencing infertility, as well as fertility issues, um, women who are experiencing um, difficult, challenging, complex pregnancies, obviously women. And when I say women, I should acknowledge, I mean, and their partners. I make no assumption about any gender notation in any of that. So my use of the language woman is all encompassing of whatever the woman wants and needs in her life. And my practice is entirely respectful of that. I have no expectations of what that might be. And most importantly, I don't judge people at all. That's not what work is about. Um, I see a lot of women uh, for trauma. I would say probably the greater percentage of the people I see and I see 100 to 120 women a month, the greater majority always, even if that's not the reason that they came to me, have experienced um, at times quite horrific perinatal trauma, unfortunately. Um, I also see women who have existing mental health problems and want more support during pregnancy and postnatally. And I also see midwifery students, midwives, um, and um, I see some uh, maternal health nurses as well in terms of being able to, mm -hmm. I guess, address some of the issues that come up in their practice that they feel, hopefully, I have got an appropriate background to be able to deal with that. I wanted to ask as well, so with um, your career in nursing midwifery, um, what line of work did you work in and how long were you working as a registered nursing midwife? So I actually started my journey in paediatrics. I actually chose to do paediatric nursing. And um, to then go from that straight into midwifery, and that would have been a direct influence of probably 
three people, I suppose. I had an auntie who was a midwife, extremely passionate about mm -hmm. her work, um, beautiful human being. My mother worked with sick children. Um, and so there was never really an interest to me in working with sick adults. Sorry to all the sick adults, but there are lovely nurses who do that. I don't need to do that. I had a father who held very strong views about social justice and equity. And again, always about applying yourself with passion. So my journey was pretty clear. I would do pediatric nursing, I would do midwifery, and then I would kind of go on from there. Um, my intention was to get a really good level of initial experiences. So I steered away from bigger hospitals where I felt I'd get a more stereotypical type experience. And a lot of my first years of practicing um, both as a nurse and a midwife, because I wasn't able to do a full BM like you can do now, um, that was spent in um, much more rural settings than it was okay. kind of more metropolitan settings. I really wanted to learn to stand on my own two feet really quickly be able to make decisions really quickly and clearly and appropriately. And I felt that the only way to do that would be to work in those settings. And for me, I think that was the right decision because I think I had fantastic experiences. In terms of being a midwife, it's wonderful because it's really you, the woman and the GP. Once the GPs get to know you and trust you, they let you work quite autonomously. And when you're only just starting up as a midwife, that's a wonderful privilege. But it's also a fantastic way to build up your confidence. And I think one of the difficulties, unfortunately, that many midwives face at the moment is that they're working in situations where, sadly, their confidence is all too frequently undermined because there's too many people around, because too many people want to interfere and intervene. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's really eroded the role of the midwife, unfortunately. So I'm really glad I did that. And if I ever had the chance to speak to students, I encourage them to do the same thing. Like, yes, I guess people would say you need a city for a social life, but if you really want to establish your career, you need to think about the best places to do that. And for me, those regional, remote, rural settings are really fabulous. You get experiences you'll never, never, ever get anywhere else. And you do get the extremes. You get really, really sick women. You get preterm births and tiny little prem babies. But you actually have to manage that rather than them all being whisked off and the care becoming quite fragmented. Um, in terms of my study journey, um, I think I kind of had two pathways, I suppose. One was that... I knew I would always do psychology. So fairly early on, I started my psychology studies, but in the same kind of parallel universe, I guess I also started education studies, did a diploma of teaching B.Ed. and then a master of education studies because I knew that I wanted to teach. I wanted to use all those fabulous experiences I had to share with students again so that they wouldn't get a fairly generic type understanding of the role of the midwife that have you know, really eclectic type experiences to be brought into their education. So that was very straightforward for me. And I always knew, don't ask why, <laughs> um, but I always knew I'd end up doing perinatal psychology. I think for me, that was kind of like the pinnacle that I'd bring it all together and that that would be a way I could really make, I hope, a very profound difference to the lives of women. Incredible. And it's, um... You mentioned at the start that you cover a large range of health issues um, and we just want to know 
how important you think it is for women to have access to those kind of services and to be able to experience, uh, be able to share those stories with someone and, and mm. get that support. Look, it was a real gamble when I decided to go into perinatal psychology because at the time there may have only been perhaps one or two other people in mm. South Australia who were even doing that. Most people thought I was mad and that I wouldn't survive financially. Um, but, you know, I'm in a state where there are 20,000 births and that's 20,000 potential clients, not all of whom I want to see. <laughs> I have no desires to do that. Um, and, but also because, and I say this without any poor intentions towards general psychology, but I spoke a couple of years ago to a huge um, group of clinical psychologists in Adelaide about the fact that perinatal psychology is fundamentally different to general psychology because of the whole context of what you're doing you are not seeing a woman with anxiety or depression. Yeah. You're seeing a woman, first of all, at a pivotal time in her life and her development. You're seeing a woman dealing with possibly significant, often even crucial decisions around that pivotal time in her life. Like, I thought I'd always get pregnant and now I can't. What does that mean for me? What, what is the rest of my life going to be about? And for some women, that's almost an end of point decision. They really find that so horrific that they can't actually see beyond that but there's also the notion that even you know when you're seeing someone who's had a miscarriage for possibly a day or possibly some weeks in her life she's been a mother and that must never be lost sight of in the work that you do with that woman and unfortunately a lot of general psychologists will see that that's a grief and loss situation and treat the grief and loss but not actually recognise, and, and I know that that was a question you wanted me to talk about, and I might jump to it now if I can. Miscarriage, um, you know, and we're talking anything from that horrible notion they talk of chemical pregnancy. I find the term quite offensive, um, and that might be four to five weeks gestation right through to um, I saw a lovely former client of mine last week who's just lost her baby at 17 weeks. Um, these are really awful silent losses. They're silent losses because generally nobody knew they were pregnant. They're silent losses because people feel that it's easier to cope by not telling people about the fact that they were pregnant and they lost their baby. But more so they're silent losses because they're invisible in the public domain. We don't have rituals and we don't have customs and we don't have practices for these losses. We know what to do with a baby that dies, a child that dies, an adult that dies. You know, we'll have a funeral, we'll have a wake, we'll have ceremonies, we'll have all kinds of things that people want. We're really accepting of that now and, and that can be quite innovative and different, but most people still find it quite abhorrent to think that you might want to have a funeral for a little fetus that's perhaps only eight to 10 weeks old. And, and the language only isn't mine, it's the language of those judging this. Whereas in actual fact, as I say to all of these women, you were a mother, you were a mother just for a while, but you were. And so we have to grieve the loss of being a mother. We grieve the loss of the baby. We grieve the loss of the pregnancy. And then we have to find a way to get through that. And I am quite particular about language. Um, I have a real aversion to the notion of people being told to get over stuff. I think that that's really insulting and, again, very offensive. It, it's offensive. It's like, you know, there's a puddle. It's not very nice, but if you just jump over it, everything will be okay again. 
I say to all the people that come to see me, my job is to help you get through this, but I'm not here to get you over it because in a sense, that's not even what it's about. It's not about getting over it. You don't get over being a mother and having lost a baby, but you do get through it and you find a place to put all of those memories where they can be safe and loving and um, privileged, if you like, but not gnawing and agonising and painful, which is what they are if those losses aren't acknowledged. You know, the typical comment, don't worry, have sex, you'll have another one, you'll be fine. Except that's not the case for some people. They actually may never get pregnant again. And that may have been the only time in their life that they actually were pregnant. So these silent losses, as I talk, talk about them, I don't know that we're ever going to get massive change, but I do have clients who love to be able to do things that push buttons a bit. So if we were more open about the loss of miscarriage, particularly, then we would bring to more public prominence a greater comfort in being able to support people. And I think people themselves would actually feel better too. I think people are always like, oh, don't talk about it. You know, it was just early pregnancy. Maybe talk about the weather or the sport or something like that. None of that is helpful at all. We wanted to ask about, I guess, in recent years, we've noticed an increase in the level of interventions that women are experiencing in their pregnancy and labour. Mm. We wanted to know if it correlated in your line of work and if it was something that you've seen an increase in. Absolutely. Um, and some of my related mental health colleagues would agree with me. Um, if I think back to maybe even 10 years ago, we could sort of see a discrete area where there was excessive intervention, but still, I think then a fairly good recognition of things like the effective care in pregnancy, childbirth um, kind of train, if you like, you know, the ECPC books that came out as we refer to them, where people mm -hmm. was, were really comfortable with citing evidence and being able to recognise where it fitted. Um, I don't know why, but that's just been so lost sight of now. I don't even hear the vernacular of people's conversations talking about evidence-based practice. I hear people talking about more combative type things, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. It's really disturbing. Um, I am aware that there is hugely unreasonable pressure on both the health system and clearly when that happens on the staff in the system. But it seems a bit like you know, whether it's due to that or whether other things have happened. But a lot of people have lost their way and have become very single-minded in their practice in ways that are very harmful to women, harmful to them as well. Certainly not doing anything to improve practice, to raise the fore again of, you know, there's fantastic evidence out there. And I suddenly am seeing this surge in cutting episiotomies. And it's like, why are we doing this when, mm. you know, um, who was it? Ian Graham, I think, or whoever it was, wrote the book on episiotomy all those years ago saying, well, we fixed that. We don't need to do episiotomies ever again other than in an emergency, which was, I don't know, whatever he said, 1% of situations or something. It's like, yep, don't do that research anymore. Done, finished. Suddenly the number of women I'm seeing who've got episiotomies, more so that they didn't know that they were getting because they didn't consent to them, Someone just said something like, oh, we just need to help baby get out and snip. And the woman's going, whoa, you know, what's the pain? And then being told afterwards, oh, yeah, we had to just help you help the baby out a bit. There's a real avoidance for explicit consent. And that, 
I know is going to increase litigation because mm -hmm. I'm certainly seeing that in my own and others' practice. The number of legal reports we're being asked to write has astronomically increased in a way I could never have imagined. I actually haven't got a period of time at the moment where I can see I won't be writing one. They're kind of all lined up like taxis in a row. Why we've lost sight of evidence-based practice, I don't know. I was really alarmed mm -hmm. to see, and I hope this is my mistake and my misreading, correct me if it is, but... I couldn't see anywhere in the new documentation that the College of Midwives had brought out about midwifery practice, the term woman-centred care. Like I was reading all of this and I thought, it's not there. It was being alluded to, but it wasn't kind of in my face. You know, the Royal College of Midwives in the UK has got a, I think it's a two-page document just on woman-centred care. You go to their website, I hope it's still there, <laughs> and you'll be able to see it. But it feels like that's even fading from the college and and that, you know, the and I know the political elements are important. I've been fighting that stuff all my life, but I would hate to think that that's taking precedent over the, if you like, the raw reality of what is going on when women give birth and that there are actually really awful open fights taking place in front of women with doctors and women and others, doulas, support people about mm -hmm. what should and should not be happening. I should say, sorry, the other people who I'm increasingly seeing as doulas, very traumatised by some of the births that they're seeing. And that's a really sad indictment on what's happening in maternity care at the moment because doulas, whether anybody likes it or not, have the strongest okay. evidence related to their practice. Yeah. Nobody can make the claims about their practice that doulas can and why midwives and doctors are so resistant to them, I cannot understand. You know, wouldn't you want the one person there who you know is going to give you the best outcome for mother and baby? Um, and so, you know, doulas are being really traumatised by awful things they're seeing and also being traumatised by the fact that they feel that they haven't been able to advocate with the woman and that's really distressing for them. But the powers in some of these, you know, birthing settings are really overburdening and you know women come away from there and the language that they use many women talk about being violated i have had women refer to their births as being a form of rape um, and i know that that's really hostile language but that's the language that women are using and i don't disbelieve women and i don't judge women i think that that is a product of exactly what you're talking about that Things are changing, but not for the better. Unfortunately, even as students, those are terms that we've uh, both been hearing at times. Yeah, this can be very challenging. Um, um, yes, and my apologies. I'm sorry. I should have said in there, yes, the other people who are suffering hugely in this are students um, who come into midwifery with beautiful aspirations as we would hope they would and somewhere along the way can find those aspirations absolutely shredded just it just takes one birth experience to have a midwifery student just feel completely annihilated and powerless and wondering why she's doing what she's doing whether she even wants to continue on and desperately needing to make sense of that so that you know I always say don't make any decisions until you've at least made sense of this experience then when you've made sense of the experience, you've gained understanding from it, you take wisdom from that experience, then decide that if this is not what you want to do, that is fine. But that's a responsive decision, not a reactive decision. But there are more students feeling that way, I think, 
um, compared to say when we first set up the BMED at UniSA in South Australia and along with Flinders, we were the first two universities in Australia to do this. Um, students weren't then experiencing what they're experiencing now. And I guess I have to say in there, I'm sorry. The other element that sits with that is that there seems to be a far greater, more overt resurgence in bullying. I guess when you say that, is that um, kind of looking at the power dynamic maybe? Within yeah, I think the bullying is, is very much a psychological consequence of the really awful pressures that people are under in health systems and birthing maternity settings at the moment. You know, there's a constant pullback of money, constant threats of needing to reduce staff. And yet at the same time, you know, the unions are advertising the fact that, you know, certainly here in South Australia, we've got horrendous problems with ranking, ramping, sorry, of ambulances. Um, we've got um, really gross understaffing and yet, um, there was a recent call by the government that 240, I think it was staff, would actually be removed from health. And you've kind of got to wonder what that might mean. You know, when people are under unreasonable pressure, when they're oppressed, I think we all know the history of oppression is that those who are oppressed will oppress others because that's often how they feel they've got the only option for coping. And so I think that's why a lot of the bullying is happening. But it is a problem. I think it's really sad that midwives would bully each other or students or women even you know women will say they felt bullied into making decisions um, that is not what being a midwife should be about and you know that's the point where I'll be sitting in my office and I'll say to my client I sit here now as your psychologist whatever you're saying about midwives and midwifery I don't take on I acknowledge that is completely unacceptable and I am sidling with you on this. I'm not going to come to the defence of the profession because I don't want to. It's so unacceptable that that's happening. You know, I mean, there is no perfect setting and working in health is always going to be challenging. I mean, health is volatile just by virtue of the fact that when you have a change of government, everything can be different. But that doesn't mean it has to be increasingly awful, increasingly harmful. Um, and, you know, to be working in a profession and to leave your shift in tears, to feel distressed at what happened, um, to wonder why you're doing what you're doing. I mean, it just should not be like that. Um, so, it, you know, I, I would really love it if the midwifery profession took a really long, hard look at what was going on and said, it isn't actually right and it isn't good. And, you know, beyond all the politics that I know that they're trying to deal with at the moment, we need to kind of come deep into the profession and look at what is happening and, why we aren't nurturing our students, why we aren't nurturing our new graduates. And it, it, it kind of struck me interestingly because I'm um, a member of the executive of Marseille. It's an international perinatal mental health organization. And one of the things that Marseille does every year is it enables mentors to mentor a younger person in the profession. Mm -hmm. So I've just linked up with a younger psychologist in Melbourne and we will work for a year on her goals and her aspirations. She's already kind of looked at my CV and said, oh, yeah, I really want to know a bit more about research and funding and that kind of thing. So we're going to meet um, roughly probably once every three to four weeks. We'll probably do it over lunchtime. We'll have a cyber coffee together. <laughs> um, but I'm hopefully going to be able to give her enough time and enthusiasm and support and encouragement 
um, to help her see a way forward. You know, she wants to work in perinatal psychology. I think that's fantastic. I'd really like that to happen. But we don't do that in midwifery, do we? Mentorship is an, an amazing model that you see in other um, professions and similar type things, but that um, continuity of having the same mentor, I could see how that would be very beneficial for this psychologist. Mm. And, you know, to give them their credit, Marseille takes this very seriously. We have to reapply each year. We have to justify why we should be accepted as a mentor. Um, if we're accepted, we're kind of set down as being possibles. Um, people who want to be mentored then have to apply, um, justify again why they should do it, what they want to get out of it. And then Marseille actually pairs people up. We don't. Um, and then we're given, I think I was given three possible choices. And I kind of went, oh, dear, they all look great but probably the one that I felt I could most directly and most appropriately help was the person that I took on. So it's done in a really careful way. It's not kind of random or haphazard. And it is something Marseille has given a commitment to do and they do it every year. They check up on you along the way to make sure things are going well. Um, and they review all of this at the end of each year as well. So, I mean, I can't see why AC, you know, the College of Midwives couldn't do something like this too. And clearly we're doing it um, by Skype. We're not going to meet each other unless I happen to go to Melbourne or she happens to come to Adelaide. That might happen, who knows? So it, it's not like there's a lot of logistics involved in this that would make it really tough. And I hope that you know I'll be able to give her some helpful things to be able to kind of keep moving on in the direction that she wants to go on. We were talking before about the um, experiences that women um, with the intervention and the birth trauma. I just wondered if you could briefly touch on um, the impacts of the sort of birth trauma and interventions on the partners or some people. Um, and, you know, as, as student midwives, you know, what's something that we can do to help partners through when they're experiencing, when, you know, things aren't going to plan necessarily in birth suite um, or they've just witnessed something that is a little bit traumatic. You know, if you have any sense of concern around the birth, then certainly provide an opportunity for the woman and her partner to know that they can go and talk to someone about that. I don't believe, and the research isn't strong enough, so it's fine, I don't believe that the people involved in the birth should debrief. And I did say this on a webinar a couple of months ago, and a lot of people kind of had big comments on the side about how in some hospitals it's the medical staff who debrief. I think that is completely appropriate, inappropriate. Um, they've got a vested interest, and women know that they're going to be made to see it through the eyes of the doctor, and that's actually adding to the harm. Um, and I did write a letter to one of the hospitals here saying, please stop trying to help women to make sense of their births because you cannot do it in an impartial way you're going to do it in a way that protects your institution and you're going to do it in a way that protects yourself and that is not what debriefing the birth is about so and when I say debriefing I don't mean the woman alone clearly I mean the woman and whoever is with her and look that could be her mother it could be her partner it actually could be some of her children. Um, certainly, it could be a doula. It could be a friend. Anybody who's there can experience what we call vicarious trauma. I don't know if you're familiar with that term, are you? It means that because they're there, they are traumatised as well. And so, therefore, they are equally at risk of any kind of mental health problem or concern just by virtue of having been there and seeing someone that they care about suffer. When we feel helpless and we're watching someone that we love suffer, 
it's a really difficult thing to reconcile mentally. Um, and that's a different level to say, if we're sitting watching someone dying, um, palliative care, for example, provides fantastic supports for yeah. families and friends in that dynamic. But when we think, we believe, someone is going to go into, generally it's hospital, but I do see some women with traumatic home births as well, but they're going to go into birth and they're going to come out of it happy with a little baby and they don't, then that makes the trauma even greater because yeah. we just can't make sense of that. You know, I'm, I'm certainly not implying that we can't deal with trauma. We can, we deal with it all the time. But when the trauma goes beyond our sense of belief and becomes one of disbelief, mm. then unpacking that, making sense of that, understanding that is very, very difficult. And then that makes the trauma that those watching feel even greater because then, of course, their helplessness and their powerlessness is exacerbated. The, the difficulty you then have is particularly for partners, and this has got nothing to do with gender, they feel that they should be strong because the woman has been harmed, hurt, you know, and the language is often damaged and broken. Mm -hmm. So they're going to kind of set aside or push away or negate their own trauma, their own hurt, their own distress in order to hold that person that they love who's harmed. And whilst that is beautifully valiant and courageous, it actually won't work in the long run because someone who's a bit broken themselves can't help someone else who was very broken. Both of those people need help. So, you know, if you had any suspicion at all as a midwifery student or a midwife, and even if it wasn't suspicion, you know, you could just say something like, you know, if you ever wanted to talk anybody to anybody about your birth, just to make sense of it, to gain some understanding of it, go and see a perinatal mental health practitioner. Um, and, you know, that's a really good person to do it with because they aren't invested in the setting. They're not invested in the birth. They're going to be there for you. They're going to listen and they're going to help you make sense of it and gain meaning from it. That's the most important thing to do from trauma so that ultimately you can emerge coming through it with wisdom. And, you know, I say that to women who've experienced sometimes horrific trauma. My goal is not just to get you through this, but to get you through this in a way that you've made sense of it, gained significant meaning from it, you are very strong as a consequence of it and very wise, no matter what happened to you. Likewise, their partners. I'm a little bit sneaky, I guess, because I say to my clients, your partner's very welcome to come along to a one-off session if they would like to. I don't charge for that. I'm really happy. Perhaps if they don't understand what I'm doing or they want to see me and make sure I haven't got two horns and a tail. <laughs> Some people have got really weird ideas about psychologists. Please bring them along. I'd love to meet them. And, you know, we sit down and, you know, once I can see that they're relaxing a bit, they start to ask questions. They talk to each other. Mm, and awesome. then with um, and then when I see the client next time, they'll say, oh, that was so helpful. My partner didn't realise how much they were holding on to or how, how sad or unhappy they felt. And they don't want to carry that on in parenting. You know, I, I always say, um, obviously, even for people who've lost a baby, the, the joy of life is still there for you. We need to help you find it. You can't find it while you are still traumatised or while you're still sad or still grieving. And it's the same for partners who are grieving as well. Um, and I don't have any expectations that they need to come back and see me. 
Um, I'll say to them, you know, I can suggest other people if you want to see someone different. That's completely fine. But talking to someone is really powerful. So how much does the stigma around mental health impact on the perinatal mental health outcomes for women? Stigma around mental health is shocking. Mm. The number of people who refuse to believe in mental health is still massive. Um, and, and yes, you know, the, I think the two things that suffer most from that are PND, perinatal anxiety and depression, because it's not just a postnatal event, it can happen during pregnancy. But the number of women I diagnose with PND who will then sort of sit back and look at me and say, what am I going to do? I can't tell anybody about this. This is so awful, you know. If my work knows, I might lose my job. And we had a, a point, and I think it's changed, but where insurance companies would actually be prejudiced against women who'd had PND in their history. Mm. I kid you not, this, this level of, of biased, discriminatory ignorance is just so, so bad and does nothing to help women get better. Um, certainly, you know, the rates of PND in Australia sit around about. 11 to 12 percent that's not small in South Australia we have the highest rates our rates are 12 to 14 percent so that's maternal PND we also know we have paternal PND John Condon did the work around that that's eight to ten percent that's still a lot of people and so it shouldn't be as one mother said to me oh that's my dirty little secret isn't it and I just said, no, it's not. You have no control over this. Um, I see people from across all levels of the demographic spectrum, um, you know, lawyers and doctors and neonatologists and psychiatrists and psychologists and stay-at-home mothers and horticulturalists, whatever. There is no classif classifying kind of level of the person who gets it. Anybody can. And PND works in this weird way where it's almost like it's picked the woman, she didn't pick it. And people can get PND and have beautiful pregnancies, beautiful labours, beautiful births. They've got all everything seemingly in their favour and can be profoundly, desperately unwell. Um, and yet society is so unaccepting of that. Like, it's just a baby, get on with it. Babies don't cry. What's wrong with you? Your baby shouldn't cry. You've just got the baby blues or, you know, the beautiful one. You're just tired. You're not coping. And then by the time you finally see them, they are almost suicidal and desperately need to be admitted. And, you know, that's the really pointy, tragic end of PND because in Australia, women die more from suicide after they've left hospital postnatally than they do from hemorrhage. So they're not good statistics to be proud of at all. So, you know, the stigma around mental health really does impact on, on the high number of women who get PND, unfortunately, and we dramatically need to change that, really do. Wow, that's really scary. <laughs> yeah. As students and soon-to-be midwives, one of the things I'd say to you is if a woman says something like, I don't feel right, I just don't feel like myself, this isn't like I thought it would be. Yeah. That's a red flag. Not for you to intervene and treat, but for you to say, thank you for telling me. It's really brave of you to do that. It's a really important thing for you to acknowledge. And this is what you can do to get help. Just go to your general practitioner, number one. Number two, ask the GP for a mental health care plan and specifically for a perinatal mental health practitioner, not a general practitioner, so someone who will know about this, and then go and see them. 
and more so because there's now 20 rebates, not 10, thanks to COVID. See, COVID did some good things. <laughs> <laughs> then go, you know, and, and be really um, assured that that's an important thing to do with the caveat that if you see this psychologist and you feel like they're not quite the right person for you, that's okay because connection is critical in the same way that you're not going to just get anybody to come into your house and do your plumbing or your wiring. You're going to be like, no, I'm not comfortable with that person. I'll have that person. If that psychologist isn't the right person, see another one. The therapeutic connection is hugely important because you need to trust this person. You need to feel that they respect you and you need to feel very safe to take the journey that you're going to take for recovery. Just to add to what we were just talking about, about the um, care plans from the GP, um, if women would like to see a psychologist for more than 20 sessions, is that then something that can be um, claimed on their private health? If oh, um, look, women don't have to have a mental health care plan if they don't want to. You can see a psychologist outright without a plan. It just means that you pay the full fee, you don't get the rebate. So the point of entry to a psychologist is not a mental health care plan. That is an individual request that a person can make. In the same way, they can also use their health insurance if they're covered for psychology, you certainly can't do both. You do Medicare or health insurance. Um, a lot of people um, would in the past have used all of their Medicare rebates and then when they ran out, they would use health insurance. But at any point, um, a person can continue to or start off seeing a psychologist without a mental health care plan. That is not an absolute requirement. Obviously for people you know, where finances are difficult, the plan makes a big difference because it means that there's a rebate and that can make a sizable difference to their income outlay. So what is some advice that we can give antenatally as midwives, which might help act as a protective factor against some of the mental health issues that women present with? I think having the discussion with women about the fact that pregnancy is not a physical event, that mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's both a life event and it's, a, if you like, a fully human event. Mm -hmm. So everything that makes you human is what's part of that pregnancy and that your psyche, your emotions, um, you know, all of those elements that make you a human being. And if at any time, I guess like the comment I made earlier, if it doesn't feel right, if it doesn't feel like you thought it would be, if it feels strange or confusing, then they hopefully will feel safe enough to let a midwife know during the pregnancy and not feel that they'll be judged for that. I think a lot of women feel very afraid to speak out because they feel they're going to be judged. Some women, unfortunately, feel quite fearful that perhaps that means someone might take their baby away from them you know if I don't feel right about my pregnancy um, they're going to label me and then they're going to think I'm an awful mother that is a very predominant fear of a lot of women feel very judged and so they won't speak up just suffer in silence um, you need to be able to show yourself as a midwife as someone that they fundamentally can trust that you won't judge them and that you really do want to acknowledge what they've got to say and you really do want to support them because ideally, you know, if this is the only pregnancy this woman's having, if it could be a joyful experience, then that would be wonderful. And it's a very hard for a woman who's pregnant to say, this isn't nice. This is, yeah. this is actually a really unpleasant experience. If you show to women that you are safe, that you are 
uh, a humble person. You know, I think humility goes a long way in midwifery and that you're not above them, that you're not going to judge them. Hopefully they'll tell you this. And if they do, they've made a very significant disclosure. And I would then really encourage you to help them on that journey to getting really good resolution. I guess just to kind of conclude it, um, what are some key messages that you would like midwives to take away from this episode today? Huh. Um, we haven't probably talked enough about language. I've got a real mm -hmm. thing about that. And language is actually one of the really top level harms that can cause women to have quite horrendous perinatal trauma. Um, the, you know, the classic, and I'm actually writing a paper on this at the moment, that classic line, the woman comes in in labour, she, you know, it's her first baby, she doesn't know where she's at or what's happening, she's just feeling excited, she thinks she's on the way, it's really great. The midwife does the vaginal examination and says, mm -hmm. oh, you're only two centimetres dilated, you're never going to get fully like this. Oh! Only, only <laughs> yeah, you know, so like, um, well, it doesn't crush, it decimates actually. If you really want to know, um, you like, think about what you're saying, um, and you know, why do we have to place so much emphasis on the size of that hole when we know that vaginal examinations are totally subjective? You know, that's an aside anyway, but that language in that moment cause that woman to totally abdicate her role as someone in labor and become someone who's a victim and re-emerging from that in the process of labor to get to the point of being strong enough to actually give birth to her baby for many women is actually impossible to do they just can't do it it's like at that moment someone passed judgment on me i'm hopeless i can't do this i'm no good and you to get that stuff out of your head at a time when you're in pain and you don't really know what's going on and there isn't even someone there to kind of metaphorically hold you and say, you're okay, you're doing a good job. Wow, you're two centimetres dilated. Your cervix is open. That's really great. Um, what are all the other things I should tell you when I'm doing a vaginal examination? Whether your cervix is effacing or not, um, where the baby's head is, what position the baby's in. Like, why don't we tell women any of those things? Why do we have to give them this kind of decree of mortality that says you are only, and, you know, the tip of the iceberg on that, and you're never going to get there. Um, it is such a cruel thing to say. It really is. So language for me and for all the women I see is probably one of the top causes of really profound harm for women in labour and birth. Um, and I'm sorry to have to say, I think midwives are the greater perpetrators of that. The behavioural stuff comes from other professionals but the language stuff, because women um, are in a position with midwives of, I suppose, quite close intimacy and, you know, that, that capacity to do things like to do a vaginal examination, in that moment, you basically make or break it for the woman. Um, I'm, yes, as I said, I'm writing a paper on this that I hope will get published, but people won't like. I, you know, we've got to change it. And that's that's one tiny example of so many of the others, you know, like, oh, don't worry, you lost a baby, get sex, you'll have another one. Um, um, all of the other awful things, you know, the other big clangor is, I did a VE on you an hour ago, you're only four centimetres dilated, you can't possibly wanting to push your baby out now. Um, 
said to so many women who sit with heads on their perineums ramming into beds um, and are told, no, you can't push because you can't be ready. The only person who's the expert of her body is the woman. We are bystanders. We are privileged to be there. But why we have to treat that woman's expertise with contempt, I do not understand. I don't get it. Like it is such an honour to be involved with someone at that time in a life. Why do I want to cut you down with my language? Why do I want to say such dispiriting things? I don't understand that at all. So that's a couple of tiny examples of language, but language is potent, unfortunately. And the more you become aware of it, the more you pick up on it too. You start hearing different phrases and thinking, how can we rephrase that to be more empowering? And don't be afraid of silence. If you don't know what to say, silence is actually better. Um, you know, just say to the woman something like, I'm just thinking about what I can say for you now, rather than kind of blurting out something that completely demonises them or demoralises them. Silence isn't an awful thing. You know, I sometimes um, frequently have to use silence at work and I'll say to the woman, gosh, I really need to think about that. I really need to think about what I think I should say for that. Just give me a few moments so that I can kind of compose the words in my head because clearly I am in a position where I cannot just blurt anything out. I've got to think about every word I say. And so silence is okay. Um, better that you are silent than you say something that is absolutely toxic. I think we've covered all of that. So we conclude each episode with a series of rapid fire questions. So our first is what are the top three qualities that you think make a good midwife. Okay, patience, passion, um, and I, can't, I really can't differentiate between intelligence and humility. I, I just think that they stick together, sorry. Mm, excellent. Great. What about your favourite study hack? Um, oh, look, that's an oldie but a goodie. It's been around forever, but it really works well and the psychology evidence is very strong. Um, highlight when you read. Okay whether you're doing it on screen or on paper, and because it requires an, a double engagement process with the information that you're taking in. You're reading it, but then you've got to make a decision about whether you think it's important enough to be able to highlight. So then you highlight it. So there's um, not just the reading activity, but the reinforcement as well. So from an educational psychology point of view, it's, it's an oldie but a goodie, it works. Uh, what's your favourite pastime that keeps you sane? Oh, probably anything that I can do on the 20-acre property that we live on. Um, yesterday was our woodshop day. I love it. We had a ball bringing down dead trees, chopping them up, um, getting cross with my chainsaw because it won't start. <laughs> 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 Makes me feel really ordinary and weak, and it's good. <laughs> what is the favourite thing that you've been consuming at the moment? So maybe a book, a TV show, a podcast, anything um, Oh, look, I've, um, one of my clients gave me a book as a thank you present. Um, I'm, I think it's either Birth Like or Give Birth Like a Feminist. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Hi, Julia. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, so I've really enjoyed reading that. Um, 
my daughter went overseas to live a few years ago. She's come back and was just to be, she was to be away for a couple of years, but she wanted me to have something that I could use to numb out because um, she and I like humour a lot. So she said, there's a TV program you have to watch, Mum, and I need to get you to start watching before I go. And I'm like, yeah, no, I'm really not a TV person at all. Um, anyway, now I'm addicted and I hate to say it, it's so embarrassing, but it's called The Big Bang Theory. <laughs> And I can come home from a really deeply, deeply heavy day at work and sit down on the couch and laugh out loud. And that's really beneficial. <laughs> um, who's one person in your life that you're most grateful for and why? Oh, wow. Um, yes. Um, hmm. Without prejudice to all of the wonderful people in my life, I'd probably have to say my daughter, I think. Um, she keeps me very grounded. Um, she has a, a really different perspective on the world to me as well as having a very similar perspective on the world to me. Um, she reads me very well. <laughs> um, and she has this amazing knack of saying on a Friday night without her knowing that I've had a really tough day at work, I think we should just go out to dinner. Come on. And I'm like, so she has a, yeah, she has a very clever ability. And then every now and then she'll send me this thing she's found on YouTube and inevitably it'll be the same thing. I've had a really, really tough, demanding day at work. And I'm like, uh -huh. and she sent me something the other night and I kind of pulled it on and went, oh, I nearly wept. It was so gorgeous. Aww. So yeah, no, I'm very grateful to have her in my life. She's wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today, Heather. This has been an amazing and really well-needed well yeah, conversation. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, look, thank you for inviting me. I hope that, you know, a little bit of something in there is helpful for somebody um, and um, gives them some sense of, you know, maybe meaning and purpose in terms of what they're doing. So thank you for the opportunity.